G'day, my name's Adam Spencer and welcome to Billion Dollar Napkin, where we discover how some of Australia's brightest startups prove that their crazy, innovative and impactful ideas were possible. We'll be taken through their triumphs, failures and pivots and learn everything from their early beginnings to how they got it made. My mindset is every day I wake up, I think about like, I'm going to change the world, right? Like I want to, I want to make a difference. I want to leave it better than I found it, right? Pretty much overnight when the hospital industry um, shut down, our revenues dropped to zero and we're at a crossroad, like what do we do now? How do you revolutionize something that's been around for 2,000 years, that we've all used countless times? The humble restaurant menu. We'll find out as I talk to Andre Malescu of Mr. Young. This is their billion dollar napkin. Andre, thanks for joining me on Billion Dollar Napkin. Thanks for having me. Let's dive straight in. Mr. Yum, show me the Billion Dollar Napkin. Show you the Billion Dollar Napkin. Okay, so Mr. Yum started off as a visual menu. We started up in like 2018 with just a visual menu where people could scan a QR code and they could just bring up a menu on their phone. From there, uh, you know, people are visual. People like eating with their eyes and... When, whenever I go to a restaurant, I look around like, what, what are people having? So we thought like simple, simple idea, put a, put a QR code on table so people can actually see what they're, they're eating. And we gave the restaurants the ability to change that menu dynamically. So there, there hasn't been any innovation in menus for about 2000 years. So we've taken the menu from a paper, paper menu to a digital version, and we've removed the admin from hospitality. Andre, let's go right back to the early days. You are a co-founder of Mr. Yum. But strictly, Mr. Yum existed for a, a few months before you came along, yeah? Who, who started it all? Cool. So, yeah, I am I'm a co-founder, but I joined about six months in. Um, Kim, Carrie, and Adrian, three of my other co-founders, were there before. Um, and I was the first tech person that they brought on. And I, I later become, became a co-founder, even though I wasn't there for, from day one. What did they bring to the organization, the first three? So we have very, very, very different skills. Like Kim's a product person, but she's been in measurement consulting for, for a long time. Adrian has done a lot of sales in the past and Carrie is previously marketing and she's looking after uh, customer experience now at Mr. Young. What attracted you to join? These three people were trying to radically change the concept of the restaurant menu, which had been around for 2000 years and always done a good job. What attracted you to join something like this? The, the size of the opportunity, and I wanted to help, and I love food, and I absolutely want to do something that I care about. What was the skills that you brought that rounded out the team? I'm, I'm focused on engineering. I've been an engineer since I was pretty much 11 when I built my first piece of software. Nice. And yeah, that's, that's what I brought to the table. Take me back to the early days of Misty. Um, what's a challenge you had to overcome in, in, in delivering this radical new service? Getting chefs buy-in was a, a really interesting challenge because if you think about, you know, when we have a big table and you have 10 people ordering at the same time, you don't want to produce 10 dockets because the chefs actually run out of docket space on their rails. Mm. So we came up with this uh, concept of batching orders together differently, but you want your drinks to go in straight away because you, you, you want to be drinking, especially during, a, you know, when you're waiting for your food, you got to have a beer. 
and we we wait for a certain amount of times before we send the food to the kitchen and the, the chef only gets one one docket and the chefs were so happy about that okay so before you did that the system was a little bit clunky and when you removed that when you thought of a, a radical new way to structure within a group of orders that really made a difference it made a difference to the chefs and it also made a difference to the people that were waiting for their drinks like you wouldn't we had a we had a rudimentary system of batching but we didn't split out the drinks and the food we waited for five minutes before we send both and now we kind of separated them them out and the drinks would print out they would get delivered while your food was was still waiting to to be sent to the kitchen qr codes are very 2020 pandemic that's when most people got to know about qr codes for you QR codes and the thought of connecting QR codes to food goes back a bit earlier than 2020, doesn't it? Yeah, QR codes are like a bridge between the physical world and the digital world. So we we thought of since 2017, I think the uh, iPhone had the QR code reader baked in the camera. So we were we, we bet really early on QR codes that they're going to be a big thing. So we've we've added QR codes on menus, on tables, and that was our bridge. Were you first in China where you saw QR codes connected with food? Yeah, this was this was back in 2000, 2016. I was on, on, on holiday there and uh, they used to use WeChat, which is a very popular uh, messaging platform there. And they do everything through that, through QR codes and you could order. I was having hot pot at the time and yeah, that was really good. What was the initial offering of Mr. Yum in that 2017, 2018 period? In 2018, we just had visual menus. Uh, when you scan a QR code, you see a menu on your phone, so you don't have to look around anymore, um, after which we've added the ordering component. Is the initial challenge of that first version of Mr. Yum, is, is it the technology the challenge for you guys, or is selling such a radical concept to a traditional industry the real challenge? It was it was around adoption and the hospitality industry um, hasn't seen a lot of change in, in in the past and we wanted to to bring in something different something new. The first journalist who ever wrote an article on Mr. Yum and I was speaking to them once and they said their thought at the time was great idea, but how is this going to make any money? <laughs> that first journalist now works for Mr. Yum. It's your media and comms guy. Oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Was he right to think in this early days, oh, I can see that's cute, but how does it make money? We, we have an ability to, to monetize it, obviously. Uh, the, more, the more service that we give to the hospital industry, we're, we're very well aligned because we, we clip the transaction. Um, and the more money we make the restaurant, the more money we make. And our goal is to always make venues more money by providing the best customer service to their guests. What was the first thing you launched to the public? Did you have five restaurants on board, full service, or a small part of the menu of 20 restaurants? Or what was the, the prototype structure of Mr. Yum? It was actually Winter Village. One of our largest customers had a pub during the winter, and that was our, our pilot venue. This was prior to our launch. And then we launched with a big bang because we were live, by the end of that year, we were live in 200 pubs across Australia. So it was, uh, it was, it was pretty massive project. So take me back to Winter Village. Can you, yeah. Is there a moment when you sell your very first meal? Is there a, is there a first order? 
Yeah, there was there was a first order. Uh, probably the most significant one. It was after the after Winter Village uh, when we went to when we went live at Hopscotch in Melbourne. I remember we went there for the night, and the first thing that we we ordered was a cheeseburger spring roll, and it was delicious. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it tasted great. But what did that represent to you, actually being able to order cheeseburger spring roll? on a platform that you'd help build. It was actually amazing. It was like, you know, one of those feelings like we took the receipt and we framed it. It's 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 one of those moments that like, you know, here we are. We worked so hard to make this happen and, you know, it was blood, sweat and tears. And how hard? How how hard had you worked? <laughs> it was all new. Everything that we were doing, nobody had done in in Australia, right? Uh we had to interface with point of sales. We had to interface with uh you know, like from payments, taking payments to point of sale, the whole thing, um, and making sure that we make it easy for the servers and the guests. So it's not just like our, we have two two customers, which is the end user and uh, the actual venues. The journey of you know what happens if a ticket doesn't print, but like you know we don't want to inconvenience people. So that that took a lot of time to iron out. Do you have moments on that journey where you think actually I don't know if we're going to be able to do this? Do you hit some roadblocks that you? don't know if you'll get through? Uh, we've had roadblocks, but I think probably we, we were very optimistic. Like as startup founders, you have to, you have to believe that you can, you can, you can do anything. And you know, you have roadblocks every day, but you just push through. Tell me more about that, that mindset you need that you have to be able to conquer these challenges. Yeah, like my mindset is every day I wake up, I think about like, I'm gonna change the world, right? Like I want to I want to make a difference. I want to leave it better than I found it, right? And yeah, that's, that's kind of like the mindset you need as a startup founder. What's a personal challenge you've had to face and overcome on this journey, Andre? Um, I think like as any founder would, would know, scaling a business from 10 people to 260 people presents a challenge in itself. And personally, you know, uh, sometimes you have this thing called imposter syndrome and where you kind of wake up and sort of say like, oh, am I really doing this? Am I, am I really doing this well? And, you know, just been, there's been some times where, you know, I've, I've had to sort of like really think about it. Like, yes, I'm actually like, I am actually doing this. And, uh, you know, uh, with the help of my co-founders, you know, we, we talk these things through and we've, we've kind of like, you know, um, it happens to everybody. It's just like, you feel a little bit like it's, it's, you're like, it's, you're not worth, you know, it's, it's not worth the opportunity. And it's very difficult to, to think that way. And then we, we need to show like solidarity in front of everybody, but, I just want to make sure that, you know, like looking after everybody's mental health and having that support is like a top priority for us and has been from day one. When you are in an organization that is ramping up like that and everyone is, is so excited, so united, but pushing so hard, how important is it for you as a leader to keep your eye on everyone, not just that they're hitting benchmarks and all that, but that they are holding it together, that they are okay? Yeah, I think it's I think it's very important. We we definitely have this culture where we have unlimited mental health days at Mistriam because it is difficult and we've 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 started this business during COVID and it's been one of the most challenging periods of time for a lot of people. And we want to make sure that you know, we we put people first. Billion Dollar Napkin is brought to you by Amazon Web Services. For over 15 years, AWS has helped more startups launch, build and succeed than any other cloud provider. If today's episode inspired you, with AWS Activate, you can access free tools and resources to help you get started. 
get up to $100,000 in AWS credits and start building with easy to use templates that allow you to launch your business idea in minutes. For more information, visit aws.amazon.com slash activate. AWS, prove what's possible. People will sometimes talk about that, that close connection with people, they're almost like family, but given your personal situation at the time, I don't think you had, you, you were living with mum and dad and then in various office spaces and things like that. This this really did become a family for you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And we're still, we're still a big family. I feel like, uh, you know, now we have 260, 270 kids. Uh, it's a lot. It's, it's definitely very interesting. How did you come to be at that stage in your life? So Reggie wants to describe it as, I was sort of living out of a bag while building Mr. Yum. Tell me more yeah, about that. Yeah, so I was, at a time I was in Vietnam and um, Kim Carey and Adrian already knew that knew each other from a previous, previous business. And an early investor connected me with Kim and that's sort of like the, the story, the story starts there. At what stage is the organization at when the pandemic comes along? Just before pandemic, how big is Mr. Yum? Oh, uh, I think we had about, 20 people working for us at the time. We were live in about 200, 250 venues, if I remember correctly. What impact did the pandemic have? Because I presume on hospitality and people going out. Yeah. That's quite a major spanner in the works, isn't it? So pretty much overnight when the hospital industry um, shut down, our revenues dropped to zero and we we're at a crossroad. Like, what do we do now? What, what sort of what direction do we take? Do we do we wait it out, or do we uh, do something else to help the hospitality during this time? So we decided to launch pickup and delivery because that was a decision that a lot of individual restaurants were having to make as well, weren't they? I'm sure a yeah. lot of people remember their local corner restaurant suddenly offering to deliver when they'd never done it before because it was the only option they had. How did Mr. Yum have to pivot? What was the what was the technical challenge of the pivot for you? We had to build some software and we had to do it really fast. We had a lot a lot of support from the industry as well because everybody was going through this together and we had to move quickly. So we've we've built something in nine days and you know deployed deployed a new solution. We were live on pickup and delivery. In nine days. Yeah. So you've pivoted the organization in terms of the software that underpins it in less than a fortnight. What what can you remember, if anything, of those nine days? Uh, we were trying to make, make something work. Uh, we, we had all of the components that we needed and we just needed to put them, put them together. We came together as the engineering team, the product team, and the rest of the organization, how can we actually like do this? And the first challenge was engineering. We solved the engineering challenge and now the rest of the organization was like, okay, let's, let's, let's tell our venues that we can do this and try it out. You've been on an interesting personal journey too because someone who originally comes as an engineer so very much in that software world and that platform world. Now at Mr. Yum, you spend more time, don't you, on HR than on day-to-day -day <laughs> engineering and technical uh, challenges. I, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a learning experience. Uh, we had to grow really fast and I was probably one of the, the best people to convince people, to, to convince engineers to join us. So I, I, I was a full-time recruiter for a while. What's it like recruiting in this sort of technical space, m mainly in Melbourne, I assume? Uh, we we went Australia wide, and we we have some some people outside APAC time zone because we are fully remote. It's a very interesting and different challenge, um, especially when you're an unknown startup because nobody knew about us. But we did have a little bit of an advantage once we became more and more popular, and people started using Mr. Yam. We 
it became easier because we could say, oh, this is a good idea. They're like, oh, I've already used it. It's so easy to use. It's, you know, best in class, the best, the best product they've used. And everybody w wants to work, f you know, for the next billion dollar idea. That's interesting. So you're saying, as opposed to some disruptors in an industry where people might understand the product and want to get on board, yours is quite disruptive. But by definition, people as consumers will start using it. That becomes the hook to get some other developers and yeah. people into the organization. Yeah, 100%. And I still remember one of the early interviews with, with somebody from a really big organization. It was a really difficult uh, difficult thing to convince them, but they already bought in. They were already like, I've used the product. It shaved 30 minutes of my lunch break. And we could always like, we could have more drinks and have like, you know, a, a longer chat, not just wait for food. In moving from one corporate role to a very different one, engineering to HR, did you learn anything about yourself? Were there skills you needed to develop or you didn't naturally bring to the HR role that you've had to work on? I, I don't see it as like leaving engineering. I was kind of wearing two hats at the mm -hmm. same time. When, when, I was, when I was trying to attract people, I was still being an engineer. So that, and I think that's what appealed to them as well. I was like, oh, this is what we're building. Like, this is how, get, how you get excited about it. Have you ever had feedback from your fellow founders on how you can improve what you bring to the organization? Yeah, we, we always do this um, reflection session where, mm -hmm. where we kind of give each other a lot of advice and, uh, oh, this one went well, this 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 what you can improve. And we reflect on it and we help each other. Like we always help each other. When the UK is emerging from lockdown and you set yourselves the corporate challenge of within 11 days, we're gonna launch in this country. For the humans involved, that's a scary proposition to, yeah. to launch a company overseas in just 11 days. What's amazing about this space, and I presume a comfort to you, is the technology that underpins it. There's no risk there, is there? That, that, that can scale up in matters of minutes and seconds. Yeah, it was, it was really good having the support of AWS in, in this journey. And, you know, when you launch something on AWS, in a matter of minutes, you can go global. And for us, the journey of building our platform and having that confidence that when we're ready, we can just flick a button, button and you know it's live. And I've done this, uh, it was on a Saturday morning, I was still in bed, clicked the button, and in a matter of minutes, uh, Ms. Giam UK was live. Is it a competitive space? Do you have other organizations trying to be the next Mr. Yum? Yeah, it is a competitive space. Um, we're doing it better than everybody where we're the category leading product. Uh, we've had a pretty good head start uh, and it's a very difficult space. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of players, there's a lot of integrations that you have to make to be able to compete at a global landscape. What do you do to stay out in front? How do you, how do you stay ahead of the curve when you are you know, the hunted and yeah. not the hunter as they say? We always have to innovate. We always bring out new things. We, we are always the first people to do something. Uh, we find ways to bring something from the physical world into a digital form. I can remember the first time I used the product and I, I, I could see it there on the table and, and it made sense what it was trying to achieve. It yeah. felt really weird and unnatural and a little bit exciting to be doing it. And it worked. If it hadn't worked, it may well have made me distrust the entire technology. When you're dealing with something as fundamental as someone ordering a beer, buying a pizza, what yeah. are the sort of things you've got to really get right so that you don't break that customer trust? It's always be reliable. Like you all, it always has to work. If, if you, 
if you don't get your beer, you're gonna get like more and more upset, and you're not gonna use it the next time. You know so, me too well. Yeah, <laughs> and um, that that's that's one thing that we we focused on f very early on reliability, and having that reliability from from the beginning and building that trust with both you know customers and the restaurants has allowed us to 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 get to where we are today. You've referred to yourself as a foodie. I want to get controversial here, Andre. Is Melbourne the hands-down, out-and-out, no-dispute food capital of Australia? It definitely is. Why? Because you have so much variety and there's so much food in Melbourne and everywhere you go, it's about food, drinks, and you can try out, you know, from like top of the range to, you know, mid-level to like really cheap, cheap, tasty food. It's, it's where, where you want to be if you want to have food. Okay, so you're the engineer working for an organization that's overhauled the whole concept of food delivery in Melbourne, the food capital of the world, and in fact, around the globe. What's the single meal you enjoy ordering most on Mr. Yum? We've overhauled the dine-in space um, and... The, the place that I love the most on, on Mr. Yam is Sparrow's Philly Cheesesteaks. I think I go there pretty much every week. They have this delicious Philly cheesesteak. Do they know that this regular guest of theirs actually designed the system that he's ordering the cheesesteak on? I think they do now, yeah. <laughs> they didn't at the beginning, which is good. 12 months from now, if things go as well as could be expected for Mr. Yum, what is Mr. Yum in mid-late 2023? Where we've recently added a, a growth factor, so we want we we don't just want to do order paying. Um, we want to make sure that we bring the customers back to, to provide more more value to the venues by bringing customers back. Also to to provide more value to you by personalizing your menus, knowing that you you really like beer. I'm not gonna try to sell you I don't know whiskey or some fizzy drinks. <laughs> so just that's 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 the next level. We're just getting started. It's a fascinating story, and it's been a, an amazing few years. I can't wait to see where time takes you. Thank you so much for telling us Mr. Yum's story, Andre Melisky. Thanks so much for having me. Billion Dollar Napkin is brought to you by Amazon Web Services and hosted by me, Adam Spencer. Produced by the good people at Podshape, we were filmed on location at the Hollywood Hotel in Sydney. 